Our scripture passage tonight comes from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some kind of charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down on the ground and wrote, But when they had heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Hannah, for courageous story. It, uh, it saddens me to acknowledge that uh, I have heard uh, far too many of those stories uh, over the past maybe 15 years, and uh, particularly in the past year. Here's one. Shame in the church for me came in the form mostly of sexual shame and guilt. As a girl and young woman, I was taught explicitly that having sex outside of marriage including lust in your heart, was wrong, and that having a sex drive was wrong. So when I hit puberty around 13, I was distraught to discover that I was having normal adolescent feelings of curiosity. Especially being a girl, I felt like I was a freak for these feelings because I was always taught that when it came to sexual urges, women and girls were always in a passive role, dressing and acting modestly to protect men's sexual purity. So to have a sex drive of my own felt completely isolating and confusing. Now that I'm married, these mixed messages still linger. They've caused a lot of turmoil for me. What I don't think proponents of this message realize is that it can seriously damage a woman's ability to enjoy sex, even when she's waited for marriage. Because at that point, we're expected to flip a switch and understand everything about ourselves and our partners. Instead, my physical body still sends my mind messages that what I'm doing is wrong and sinful and therefore should be shamed and rejected. It's so frustrating to have done the right thing by waiting and now to be nearly unable to enjoy the fruits of my purity. A man, on hearing that uh, I was going to be speaking on sexual shame, reminded me that men can experience sexual shame as well. And over the years, uh, that's proven to be true. Uh, A number of men have shared that struggle with me. Uh, Here are a few examples. I struggle with pornography. I feel very ashamed of this. I'm not comfortable with my body, and sex reminds me of this. I've made huge mistakes in my past, and this causes me shame. Men are supposed to have an incredibly strong sex drive. I don't, and I feel like less of a man. I think I may be gay, I'm very conflicted about this. Our marriage is pretty sexless, and I've never told anybody that, and I'm embarrassed. 
Well, the past four weeks, we have been uh, studying healing shame. And the subject has uh, created a lot of good conversations. And the main theme by far has been healing sexual shame. And so um, because there's so much energy and need in our body right now over this theme, uh, I've decided to spend the next three weeks uh, on this theme of healing sexual shame. And I really want to acknowledge that uh, I do not understand everything about this topic, and I won't do it perfectly. Uh, I welcome your feedback along the way. I think it's better to talk about it imperfectly than to not talk about it at all. So our tentative plan is that we're going to spend the next three weeks uh, in the story of Jesus' encounter with the religious system on the battlefield of sex. I'm going to preach on this for two weeks, And then I've asked Paige to go over the same material and preach on it from her perspective. I felt it was important that we have both a male and a female perspective on this text. And parents, as we indicated in in the email, uh, if you would prefer your children not to be here during the sermons, Douglas will uh, offer a, a small group upstairs in the chapel. And I thought we'd begin by placing this story in the broader narrative of John's gospel. One of the primary themes in John's gospel is life. Jesus is on a mission to bring life, abundant life to everyone. John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus often says, I am the source of this life. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. John 11.25, I'm the resurrection and the life. John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 36 times Zoe is used in the Gospel of John. Cognates of Zoe are used 58 times. Now, the way the book of John is outlined is different than other Gospels. Uh, The first half deal with uh, the acts, the works, the signs of Jesus as he gives life. The last half deals mostly with the passion. And the story that we're going to look at tonight is one of those signs, one of those works, one of those events where Jesus gives life uh, as he heals sexual brokenness. And our text says that, or actually John 7 tells us that this is taking place during the Feast of Booths. He, He apparently meets the woman on the last day of the Feast of Booths. That was an eight-day celebration, uh, the last of the fall festivals. It was held at the end of the agricultural year in Israel. It was a time to thank God for provision. But it also was a time when Israel remembered her wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan when God made the people live in booths. And I think that's significant because this was a time that reminded Israel of a, of a time of great transition, of a time of going from Egypt and slavery to the promised land. And Jesus is doing the same thing now for Israel. He is the new Moses. He's bringing Israel out of bondage to the, to the law and to the promised land of the Spirit. He is closing a chapter in God's redemptive story and opening a new one. So, so one of the things that we're going to see here in this story is that Jesus is confronting an old dying religious system. He is bringing life, and the old system is literally trying to kill the woman with teaching on sexuality. 
Now, this does create a lot of tension among the leaders of, of Israel. Jesus is teaching every day on the temple steps. The people are beginning to wonder if he's the Messiah. And then we read in John 7, the Pharisees heard the crowd and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They're not able to do that. But the next day, this great battle takes place in front of the temple. Uh, Jewish law actually did have very strict restrictions against adultery. Uh, Commands in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 ordered the death penalty for both the man and the woman caught in adultery. So what we have in our story, and we'll look at it more deeply in a moment and the next week, essentially a Taliban hit squad goes out and uh, finds a woman caught in adultery, whatever that means, in order to trap Jesus. And they drag her through the streets that have been thronged with people to the front of the temple and they think that they've put Jesus in, a, in a, an impossible paradox. If he pardons her, he breaks the law of Moses. If he stones her, the people will not see him as compassionate. And I, I think it's important to step back, even at this point, and understand that this story is not so much about sex. This story is about power and how the religious leaders are using the church's teaching or Israel's teaching on sex to exercise power over Jesus and the woman. And one of the things that we notice too in this story that there is no vision of sexual integrity here. The teaching on sexuality is only used to condemn the deeper meaning of the law to protect the marriage covenant and promote sexual wholeness is entirely lost in the passage. Women are treated unfairly and made accountable for the man's actions. He's not even in the story. So what we're seeing in John 8 is a battle between the legalistic, shame-based forces of religion and the spirit-led, grace-based way of Jesus, and the battlefield is sex. Jesus comes to bring life to the woman. The religious powers literally are trying to kill her. And one of the things I want to say tonight as we introduce this is that that battle is still being fought today. Jesus wants to bring life to our sexuality, whether we are single or married. But the church too often brings harm by the way she talks about sex. Just a couple of very current illustrations. In, uh, in December... ABC News reported that 500 priests in Illinois have been accused of sexual abuse. That's one state. Now every state is beginning a similar investigation. This week, Pope Francis acknowledged that nuns have been sexually abused by priests and forced to have abortions. NBC reported in a recent report that a prominent evangelical missionary organization, one that I know well, covered up sexual abuse in one of their boarding schools, the organization, quote, scared victims into silence by telling stories of Africans going to hell or missionaries ending up in foreign prisons if the allegations ever got out. This morning's Houston Chronicle ran a story with this headline, Abuse of Faith. 20 years, 700 victims, Southern Baptist sexual abuse spreads as leaders resist reforms. Psychology Today ran a lengthy story on religious sexual shame, saying that therapists around the country are, quote, now seeing a tide of young people feeling immense shame and pain about their sexual urges. The article blames church teaching for much of this. 
A friend told me that while they were in graduate school, she attended a new member's class in a church that she really enjoyed. On the last day of the class, an elder pulled out a stool and said it was time to talk about the kinds of people who should not think about joining the church. He went on to describe people committing certain kinds of sins. They were all sexual sins. He did not mention any other kind of sin. My friend raised her hand and asked, Do you mean that if I am married and my husband beats me every night, we are welcome? She did not join the church. (laughs) Another friend wrote, At 12, I developed all the curves of a woman quite suddenly. Before church services, my devout grandmother took an ace bandage and wrapped me around and around, pushing down all nature had deposited so early. The message was clear. My body was bad, something to be disguised. The sad thing is, all the stories I left on my desk. So how on earth did we get here? How do people who have a Bible with the Song of Solomon in it get here? Well, how did we come to believe that the body was bad, that sexual desire was bad, that pleasure was bad? It's a long and complicated story. The overly simple answer is that many of the early church fathers imported into their study of Scripture a Greek dualistic worldview that saw the spirit is good and the body is bad. Bodily desires were bad. The way to embrace the life of the spirit was to reject the life of the flesh. And this was especially true with regards to sex. And uh, I've done some reading on this this week. The early church theologians, many of them had a remarkably negative view of sex. Uh, First of all, they saw it as a necessary evil for producing children. St. Jerome wrote, We Christians have intercourse only to produce children, and he who is too fond of his wife commits adultery. Women were often seen as the temptress, responsible for producing men. Tertullian uh, wrote to women in a letter, You are each an Eve, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of the forbidden tree. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image in man. And Augustine wrote, It is still Eve the temptress that we must be aware of in any woman. Later, Pope Innocent III wrote, The three. It's like two Corinthians. Um, uh, Pope Innocent III <laughs> <laughs> a little had to have a little levity there. This is uh, yeah. oh, how much longer? <laughs> okay, but, um, marital intercourse can never take place without the filth of lust. The great medieval theologian Albertus Magnus described sex as filthy, polluting, shameful, brutish, depraved, and infected. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest minds of the Western Church, described sex as repugnant, a stain, foulness, a disgrace, and a disease and would not talk with a woman unless forced to by a higher authority. Uh, Literally. The popular medieval witch hunter's handbook, true name, asserted that, quote, the power of the devil lies in the privy parts of men. Now, none of us would affirm these statements today, but these unbiblical distortions of Scripture still infect the church. And so it is no wonder that, for some, the church's teaching on sex has brought death instead of life. I have a book on my desk that calls for a new sexual reformation in the church. 
Uh, Paige and I have far more modest ambitions during these three weeks. Uh, This is a story about Jesus restoring a woman to sexual wholeness. We simply want to slowly and prayerfully reflect on this story and learn what we can about healing sexual shame. And we see this as the first word, not the last, an invitation to start a conversation on sexual integrity, not to end one. Well, our story begins, and we're only going to cover one verse tonight. (laughs) Most of this was introduction. They went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, you may remember that Jesus went there to pray. And it's still there today. Thousand-year-old olive trees are at the base of that mountain. It's where the Lord walked and prayed. And I think it's so significant. Jesus is about to confront sexual brokenness. He is about to confront sexual violence. And we will see him interact with it in remarkably wise and sensitive and biblical ways. Where does that come from? It comes from his time with the Father. He responds because... He is abiding in the Father. And I I hope that that provides a model for us, Jesus in the Mount of Olives, when we talk about our own sexual brokenness with one another. And if if I may just say this, a good question would be, what on earth are you hoping to have happen in this series? Um, I just hope that we can be a safe enough family where with the right people we can talk about these things And I'm hoping that this teaching creates a a biblical safe container for us to have the conversation. Because as as Hannah so eloquently shared, in my experience, the first step to healing sexual shame is talking about it in a safe place. And I hope that we move towards that. Um, There is a tendency in the church to focus on the rule book. And the way that we've approached sexuality goes something like this. What have you done? Here's the rule. I think we need to move beyond that. I do think we need to care about the book. I think that's where all of this discussion begins, is with a thorough knowledge of what God has said about human sexuality. But we need to do more with one another than to help us remember the rules. The rules point towards wholeness. But the rules alone are not enough. Jesus knew the rules, but he spent all night with the Father to discern how to apply them. I was reading a book that several of you recommended to me, and the author had a very interesting contrast. She was saying that there's a difference in thinking about holiness or wholeness in our sexuality, and purity. And she goes back to the roots of both words, and she points out that purity has to do with separation uh, from something, avoiding something. Uh, Wholeness or holiness has to do with union with God, of being united with God. And the author was saying uh, that it may be more helpful for us to think of wholeness or holiness of how can our sexuality unite us with God. 
And I think it's interesting that the most profound story in all the Gospels about dealing with sexual brokenness begins with an all-night prayer meeting. Uh, Evidently, sexual healing is spiritual healing. And I think what happened when the Greek fathers embraced dualism and rejected the holistic Hebrew vision of the body and began to think about the body being split off from the soul, sexuality was cut off from spirituality. And so in this story, what I think we see is Jesus bringing sexual wholeness and spiritual wholeness back together again towards a more integrated life. Sexual brokenness is not just about our bodies, it's about our souls. And so when we experience sexual brokenness, we need to ask, what is it teaching us about our souls? I'm no expert on this. I'm not even particularly well read on it. So I've been trying to catch up. And I've been surprised as I've been reading and listening to therapists who work in this area, both Christians and non-Christians, talk about this. And it's helped me see that sexual brokenness is, is expressed in many ways and that many of us are dealing with it and that it's very difficult to talk about. And normally when preachers deal with this, we, we hit the low-hanging fruit. We talk about pornography or things like that. But one of the things uh, therapists, I learned from therapists is, you know, one of the greatest uh, areas of sexual brokenness and pain among Christians today, it's uh, couples who do not have sex. Christian couples that are not enjoying that part of, of, of a healthy marriage. And I think we do need to say that's as broken as the, the dear one that's struggling with pornography. Let's not obsess always on that out there. Uh, if this is not going well in our marriage, that is also sexual brokenness. So what do you do if that's where you are tonight? Well, we could start with the rule book, chapter and verse. This is God's plan for marriage and serve one another and yield to one another. And maybe you need to know that. I assume if you've been in church for a while, you know that. There's a place for knowing that. We all should know that. But I'd also say, if that's where you are tonight, um, spend some time in the Mount of Olives. Ask the Lord. Maybe if, if your marriage is healthy enough, pray about it together. You know, it's been six months since we had sex. I don't want to shame you, uh, but could we pray about it? I wonder what's going on here. Uh, Holy Spirit, could you show me, us, maybe some deeper things that have resulted in, in this? Maybe sexual brokenness is a symptom of spiritual brokenness. I'm pretty sure that it is. And what about porn? Clearly not a good idea for many reasons, not the least of which is that it dehumanizes our daughters and sisters. It's real easy to start there with the rule book and beat yourself up and put a filter on your computer. Sometimes that's what you need to do. But I wonder if we could also spend some time at the Mount of Olives. I wonder if if we might become curious about why, after a long and disappointing day, when you're feeling particularly disconnected from your spouse, or maybe you're single and you're wrestling with with your own desires, that you would want to, to go look at something like that. Could it be that that urge is actually telling you something about something you really do need? 
Could it be that you're not a wicked person, but that actually you have real desires for connection and intimacy and communion and union, and this fallen world has messed it all up and you're not experiencing it? And could it be that the deeper you go into that longing and desire and see it for what it really is, that you begin the gentle yet painful work of repentance and moving back towards an intimate connection with God and the people that you love? And could it be that as you heal and you begin to fall in love with God again and reconnect with the people in your world, whether you're single or married, that your desire to look at porn might diminish? I think it could. And if you come into my office and say, as frankly a number of you and others have over the years, I think I am gay. What do I do with this? We will start with Scripture. Uh, And we will start, and I will say, I would like to spend several years with you talking about this. I would say, here are some things to read. I would say, let's pray. Are you ready to begin a long journey with me? Let's spend some time together on the Mount of Olives. Jesus came to bring life, even where we are sexually broken. And if something is stirring in you tonight, as we think about this, I encourage you to do two things. One is, read God's Word. Read John 8, and and do what we call dwelling in the Word. Read it over several times. And just pay attention to what the Holy Spirit kind of ignites in you. And just sit with this passage these next three weeks. Meditate in it. It's a wonderful way to prepare for Lent. And then if something is stirring in you and coming up, uh, I actually had a little picture as I was praying for you. Um, We we have a a leak in our our basement. um, And uh, it it, it went through uh, some of our sheetrock. And so we... uh, brought a plumber out, and he cut open the sheetrock. He went up, he could see where it's leaking, he fixed that, and of course, there's mold that has spread, not badly, but around the sheetrock. And he took a picture of it and showed it to me and then gave me a ridiculous estimate for fixing it. That's another story. Um, And as I was praying for you, that's kind of what I would love the Holy Spirit would do for each of us during this series, is that if, if there is some mold in the basement, that he would gently, and these were nice young plumbers, they were nice people, that he would uh, (laughs) gently come, cut open a little piece of the sheetrock, and kind of flash a little light back there and say, actually, there is some mold there, we can take care of that. And so, if there is some mold in your basement around sexual shame, uh, may the Holy Spirit show that and clean it up. And as Hannah said, the other way is to talk with someone you trust about this. I actually think that's how you cut open the sheetrock. I think that that's why so many people want to join Hannah in that book group, is it's just good to know you're not the only one with mold, and I've now beat that metaphor totally to death, and I'll stop. Um, and lastly, pray for Paige and I as we, uh, as we prepare. Uh, I've rarely talked about this with a congregation, and I don't think Paige has either. So we would appreciate... Uh, your help, and also your feedback. Anything that 
I say or Paige say. We love to hear feedback. If, if something is wrong or off or troubling, let's just talk about it. As I said, uh, I'd rather do this imperfectly than not do it at all. Let's pray. Let's pray.